Hi, this is John Hand, and on this episode of Sci-Fi Showcase, we're going to cover a classic, a very influential piece of sci-fi, which doesn't strike many people as influential, and it's kind of sad, because before Michael Myers, before The Terminator, there was Yul Brenner as the gunslinger in Michael Crichton's 1973 film, Westworld. MGM presents Westworld. Attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. We have you on grid five, over. It consists of three worlds of the past. Locking in now. Worlds where you can live out your every fantasy. There's Roman world, the lusty, decadent delights of Imperial Pompeii. Notify ground crews. Medieval world, chivalry and combat in 13th century Europe. And Westworld, lawless violence on the American frontier of the 1880s. Each resort is maintained by reliable computer technology and peopled by lifelike robot men and women. Let's stand by for resort activation. Ready on six, on five, on four, on three, on two. Activate now. Our robots are programmed to provide you with an unforgettable vacation. Dinner at seven, breakfast at 6.30. Get lunch on your own. Don't look like much here, but we have everything. Mean to tell me he's a robot? What'll it be? Uh, vodka martini on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Very dry, please. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. Many elements of the Delos Resort are potentially dangerous. That's part of the appeal. Go on. You say something, boy. Kill him. Your move. Our technology is designed to provide all in complete safety. In Westworld, frustrations find release. Desire ends in satisfaction. Let me handle it. And all in a controlled environment. That's not supposed to happen. We know you'll enjoy your stay in Westworld. Hold it. The ultimate resort. Let me do it this time. Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. I'm shot. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh, my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. Westworld from MGM. Starring Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin, and James Brolin. Westworld, the ultimate resort. Boy, do we have a vacation for you. For you. For you. For you. And the film takes place in the not-too-far future, where there is this resort called Delos. And Delos is the resort to end all resorts. It is actually three parks. It's Roman world, medieval world, and West world. And these three parks make up Delos, which is this kind of Disney-fied resort 
For $1,000 a day, you can experience what it was like in medieval times with the kings and castles and knights and uh, all this kind of stuff. Or you can go to Roman world and have this kind of Roman bacchanal. Or you can go to Western world and uh, see an authentic 1880s Western with stagecoaches and uh, bank robberies and shootouts and, and all this kind of stuff. And all of these resorts are not populated by humans, they're actually populated by robots, which you can have sex with, robots which you can kill, robots which you can talk to, lifelike robots which are so real, you're, you really can't tell them apart from the humans, the, the actual you know, resort goers. They have a few defects. They haven't perfected their hands, the palms of their hands specifically. They kind of look a little weird. And their eyes have this kind of weird metallic tint at times. But overall, it's the perfect resort, the safest, uh, most secure, kind of Disney-fied resort, except they begin to become problems. The machines start to kind of break down, and they begin to experience what the technicians running running the resort are calling central failures, where basically the, the, the robots aren't doing what they're programmed to. And eventually, uh, by the end of the film, the resort kind of falls into chaos. The film begins on the hovercraft, uh, the hovercraft which uh, takes you to Delos, which is in, which we're supposed to believe is in the middle of the desert. As our two specific resort guests that we follow, played by Richard Benjamin and James Brolin, are going to Westworld or Western World, as it's described in the orientation movie that they see on the hovercraft, which James Brolin doesn't want to see because he's already been there before. And James Brolin is dragging his friend Richard Benjamin, uh, who's a you know a lawyer from Chicago who's kind of suffering from a recent divorce, uh, and just taking his friend there to have some fun. So anyway, the movie is called Westworld, and so medieval world and Roman world kind of get the short shrift. Our main focus is Westworld and James Brolin and Richard Benjamin, and you know they they suit up. And they go into this, and they come to town, they ride into town via stagecoach, and, you know, they're just hanging out and having having a ball. They're just like little kids, you know, they're cowboys and Indians. And they meet this gunslinger in the saloon, played by Yule Brenner. Yule Brenner, who's, who's looking just like he walked out of the Magnificent Seven, famous actor, famous iconic actor, and he plays the, this this gunslinger who who engages Richard Benjamin. Richard Benjamin shoots him uh, throughout the film. Richard Benjamin shoots him again, and so Richard Benjamin is having a fun, you know, wonderful time here at the resort. Here, just shooting, killing, and he goes to the, he goes to the saloon and spends a night with one of the uh, robot prostitutes, who is my God, probably one of the prettiest robot prostitutes I've ever seen. I, I, I still remember watching this on VHS years ago and just, oh man, oh my. She is, she was good. This, this film is um, pretty much a G-rated film, PG. There's no real nudity. You know, there is some violence because we see the gunslinger get killed, we see murders. But uh, still, she was just a great, she was just a looker. So Brolin and Benjamin 
are having a great time. Also, a cute little cameo, small performance by Dick Dick Van Patten, who plays his banker, you know, who's who's all shy and weird. And the film climaxes with this really incredible 20-minute sequence of the gunslinger basically chasing Richard Benjamin through all of these theme parks. He escapes Westworld, goes into into Roman world, and then eventually makes his way into medieval world. And as this relentless killer just keeps, you know, chasing after him. And as the park just goes berserk and the uh, the uh, robots just, just go, go nuts. So that's basically the film in a nutshell. 88 minutes of really tight, wonderful storytelling and exquisite filmmaking. This 1973 MGM film kind of encapsulates everything I loved about 70s film. The mood, the style, the tone, the storytelling. To me, it, and, and MGM had that. I mean, they had everything from 2001 A Space Odyssey, well, that's 68, to, you know, Rollerball, to Westworld. I mean, this is kind of like the Soylent Green, uh, the iconic, you know, set of, of sci-fi films made by you know, Warner Brothers and MGM. Some some great, great, you know, just, just wonderful little films. And to me, Westworld has kind of, it's in the, it's in the history books, but I don't think it really gets the kind of praise that it deserves because Rewatching it, I was watching a, a recording from HDNet Movies. In HD, it's just a wonderful, wonderful film. It moves along at such a fast pace, at such a fast clip. And it, it has kind of engaging storytelling, and it's not as heavy-handed as A Soil and Green or you know some, some of the other films. It kind of, to me, gets in the range of more of a... 2001, not on a on a really heavily heavily stylistic level, but just on a level that it 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 presents itself to. It's very experiential. The film is very much an experience, and you kind of you experience the film through the conduit of James Brolin and Richard Benjamin. And I thought that was really an excellent choice, as opposed to getting a a Charlton Heston or having this big guy. I mean, really, James Brolin is kind of the big kind of action-type guy in the film. But to have this kind of sensitive actor of romantic comedies, you know, Richard Benjamin, play this character who you can really feel the pathos and the the fear as he's just being, as he has to, something has to change within himself in order to fight for survival, really, at the end of this film, you know. And all throughout the film, you know, you're not really sure how to feel with these these robots here who seem to be at your beck and call, who you can kill, who you can have sex with, you know. And you you kind of feel this kind of conflict and, you know, your, your own kind of in, engagement to the story and the characters in this vicarious way that, that cinema is this vicarious exploration of other people's lives and other and these figures which are moving around for you. So Richard Benjamin kind of embodies that. And it's and it's and it's a really great role and you just feel the kind of anger and tension. Westworld the film 
Michael Crichton, I, I, let me back up a little bit and, and give you some information on uh, on the the genesis of this film, and we'll go into the specific particulars of this this resort, of this Westworld resort. Because Michael Crichton, of course, the the writer of the Andromeda Strain and the Terminal Man and Jurassic Park later on, you can see a lot of Jurassic Park in Westworld. You can see the the germ of the idea of, of Jurassic Park in Westworld. And Westworld began with with Michael Crichton going to Disney and seeing these animatronic figures seeing Abraham Lincoln, the Gangsburg Address, there of these the figures of the Imagineers and trying to take that the next step further and, and go well, okay, what if there was a resort which had an even more advanced type of robotic technology? He says he tried to do it as a book. The book, it was more of a visual thing, though, because he, in Westworld, he deals with cliches and archetypes. The, the, war, the 1880s world of Westworld, it isn't the 1880s world of Westworld. It's the, it's the Hollywood Western view of, uh, of the of of eighteen eighties Wild West, it's it's the literally the Wild Wild West or Gunsmoke or Stagecoach, all of those films. You know, it's that type of feel of vibe. You know, it feels very kind of theatrical, and it feels very much like a a, a Western picture. Really, at that point, it, it, the film is conceptually very weird because it's a it's a sci fi film, but then. You have these section, this big hunk of the film, which is primarily focused inside Westworld, and you don't see. It's not cowboys and aliens. It's not this this intermingling of these elements. It's it becomes like a western itself, and and you almost catch yourself just. Is this a western or is this a a sci-fi film? There's this long chunk of the film where at one point Richard Benjamin kills the gunslinger a second time and he gets and he gets put in prison and then James Brolin um uh breaks him out and they run and they they ride out into the into the country and there's some weird dialogue between Brolin and and Benjamin where he's like you know I'm almost this is so real I'm almost beginning to believe it you know And, and it's uh, to me, that was almost a surrogate for the audience. It's like this, this, this Western situation feels so real. I'm almost beginning to believe it's actually a Western, you know. And then it brings us back when he, when James Brolin actually gets bit by a by an animatronic snake, which again is, a, is another central failure. Again, another one of these robots um, acting uh, out towards uh, the, the the guests. So the world of Westworld looks like a Hollywood Western. Michael Crichton was consciously doing that. He shot it like a Hollywood western, and the medieval world and and Roman world, you know, just they don't they don't get a lot of coverage. You know, we're really focused on Westworld. The medieval world is just like basically two sets, maybe even just one set that was redressed multiple times, and Roman world is really. This is nothing. It's uh, they shot it in the Harold Harold Lloyd's uh, gardens of his estate, the estate of of a famous uh, silent filmmaker, actor Harold Lloyd, who was into some odd stuff. Yeah, Harold Lloyd was into some. He was into photography. He was into three D photography. 
he was into 3D nude cheesecake photography, and uh, he, he shot a lot of um, he shot a lot of pictures in this in this uh, by this pool in this uh, area here of uh, of nudes and uh, cheesecake, uh, and they they published a book of it. It's very odd, you know, very odd to think of Harold Lloyd, which is the if you don't know who Harold Lloyd is, this silent film actor with the with the big round glasses who was always hanging off of the building and stuff, and uh, but anyway, so <laughs> so the film, you know, was done on a very very low budget because he wrote it. At, you know, he tried to write it as a book. It it became a film because again he wanted to to use these archetypes because that's how most people know of the medieval world or the Roman world or the Western. It it it's the, it's through movies. It's not through books or obviously through first hand knowledge. It's it's through through pop culture, through movies. If you're going to a resort, that's what you'd want to see, realistically. Michael Crichton had directed a, a TV movie based on one of his books. The Andromeda Strain had come out a little while before this, and I think there was some disagreements with uh, Robert Wise, the director of Andromeda Strain, and I... I I I think he was he felt it was time to direct his own material, and you know of course Michael Crichton who was a, such a young phenom at this point he could do it. He tried to shop Westworld around to all the studios, everyone except Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM, turned him down, and he got a very small budget from MGM. He got a little over a million dollars. He got you know. A little over 30 days to shoot this film. It was done on a very tight schedule. Again, he had to shoot in the scenes in the Mojave Desert, uh, the gardens in the Harold Lloyd Estate, some sets on the MGM lot. He shot the film fast, came together very fast. Now, one of the groundbreaking aspects of this film, which is in the history books, is that Westworld had the the first use of digitally processed imagery in a major feature film. And that was the POV, the heads-up display, the POV of the Yul Brenner uh, robot as he is chasing Richard Benjamin at the end of the film. We see this kind of rough, pixelated bitmap, like uh, some kind of 8-bit graphics of the, the, the scenery uh, as as he's chasing Richard Benjamin, and he has this this infrared vision. Michael Crichton tried many photographic methods to to get the robot vision. He wanted something purely digital, and he knew that at this point, digital imagery was getting to a point where you could actually get that in, on film. Eventually, they settle on uh, John John Whitney Jr. And Gary Demos, uh, who at that time were starting to work with a company called Triple I, or Information International Incorporated, or something like that. They're mainly known as Triple I. They're no longer they're defunct, like a lot of the the companies at that point. And they created this uh, imagery, which was just for its time. It, it, in this modern era, it's very simple, but for its time, it was just groundbreaking. It it took them months and months and months to process this. And I, I've been trying to find some specific information about what they did, how specifically they pulled it off. 
I, I I'm sure there's a lot of proprietary software uh, and hardware involved in that here because you know John R. Whitney Jr. John, his father John R. Whitney Sr. had been working with analog computers in the 1960s and and doing. Uh, this kind of uh, computer-generated imagery for defense contractors and, you know, various private organizations. And what you have in Westworld is kind of... The, the, the imagery itself is not that impressive, but the, the fact that it's there and the fact that it was the first is in itself kind of groundbreaking. And this... The, night, the film... Westworld was was in 1973. The first SeaGraph conference was in 1973 for computer-generated imagery. And so it was kind of the beginnings of these guys, John Whitney and Gary Demos and Triple I, you know, and a number of other people kind of getting together. Ed Catmull, uh, the people who eventually were to be involved in Pixar and... This is basically laying the groundwork for the digital imagery industry, pretty much, in the sense that a lot of people were getting together and the state of the art was getting to a point where they didn't have to just do this for defense or people with a a seven-figure budget, that it could be done far cheaper and it actually could be done on the schedule needed for a film. And you could actually put this kind of imagery in a film. And so that... That was just, you know, a mind-blowing concept, and I can't imagine the audiences of 1973 how this kind of imagery must have looked, you know. So, speaking of the the robot's vision, let's speak about the robot itself, because probably one of the most compelling images of this film is Yule Brenner. Yule Brenner as the robot with the the contact lenses, which are, you know, 80% contact lenses, reflective, 80% reflective, where they could use lighting to stress the the, the, um, the, the eyes, the weirdness of the eyes, because Michael Crichton wanted some way to, to suggest these, these robots, you know, some kind of uh, mechanical, otherworldly sense about them. It kind of reminds me of what was what had been done, you know, a number of years later, well, really almost 10 years later, with Blade Runner, with the, uh, the eyes, which kind of have that uh, reddish tint to them, that have the, um, the red eye, which uh, cinematographer Jordan Cronenworth got into the eyes in Blade Runner. In Westworld, it was actually done with a combination of contact lenses and and lighting in Blade Runner. It was completely lighting. But Yule Brenner, the, the star of Magnificent Seven, and he plays this 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 android that uh, this robot whose job is just to be be, be killed. I, I think I think actually um, the make during the making of uh, of Westworld they did a, they did a, you know like most MGM films at that point there was a a promotional making of film and there's a great little interview with Yul um, Brenner where he actually discusses you know his character as the gunslinger which I thought was a really kind of a little fascinating snippet of audio actually I've really got the classical westerner played by a highly developed machine therefore the reactions may not be necessarily human now three times he gets severely severely damaged by the character that Dick Benjamin plays 
and something goes wrong because the programming is so sophisticated that he finally cannot stand it to be constantly shot and he starts killing he starts repeating what his enemy did then he starts smiling the closer he gets to killing the more he starts feeling warmth and become more of a human being okay so that was Yul Brenner describing how he sees his character and his role you know Another interesting thing that Yul Brenner touches on in that interview is, unlike some other robot films, there's always this strong sense of morality in them, the fact that the machines are think they're human, or they, they want to be something you know more than a machine, and they gain sentience, basically, that they become a kind of sentient life form. And Westworld doesn't really contain that. I think it's a much better film for that in the sense that the audience is kind of left wondering exactly what caused these robots to go insane. Was the the constant servitude to man? Was the fact that uh, you know they're uh, they're they're constantly having to die and and be reborn every night? W- is that what's causing them to go crazy? I mean, we're never really... We're shown a big computer room, but we're never really... And we spend a lot of time here in the computer room with these technicians, and it's kind of funny because there's a lot of chatter in the in, in the room because they have everything's on closed-circuit cam- you know, video cameras. They know everything that's going on in Westworld, and they're able to choreograph the robots' events you know, perfectly. But, but you know... And, and then there's always some mundane chatter in the background about, oh, my dry cleaning, no, oh, I want this, I want that sandwich, you know, ordered for me. You know, but th- we're never really given this idea that there is some kind of, you know, intelligence running the, the place. One of the technicians running, running the resort kind of hints at that. He makes some allusions to that. He tells us he tells us that we're not even really sure what's going on with the robots because some of these robots are so technically advanced that they were actually designed by other androids. They were designed by other programs. So these robots were actually designed by computers. They're so advanced that they don't even know they don't even completely understand them. That's the only kind of illusion that we're we're given to that that some that somehow there there might be some kind of sentient intelligence which is causing everything to go to go crazy and to cause havoc. I mean, the, this this the the failures are which are in the film are display, you know described as central failures or central failure psychosis. It's described as something that's kind of spreading, that it started in Roman or medieval world, and it's kind of spreading between those two, and now it's infecting Westworld, like, say, a like an actual infection, or, say, a computer virus. So, you know, in 1973, the idea of a computer virus, I'm sure that's very heady, and, and probably before its time as well. So, again, that's another thing that's just you know, on a conceptual level that, that, you know, Michael Crichton was um, figuring out really before that was even really happening. But beyond all of that, beyond all of that technical mumbo-jumbo and and the big ideas which the film is aspiring toward and, all you know, all that cool stuff which you can think about and which is in the history books and all of this, 
to me, the film is just is Richard is is Richard Benjamin and Yul Brenner and Yul Brenner as this kind of you know thoughtless you know unpitying killer who will stop at nothing and who moves at such a slow pace for this Richard Benjamin who was who was like the Jamie Lee Curtis of the who was just you know fighting like mad for his life and. Uh, you know, I've read various articles and things where John Carpenter was inspired by Westworld when he created Michael Myers, the unstoppable killer in Halloween. And you can really see that. You can see that Newell Brenner as this thoughtless, you know, killer is just the proto, it's completely the prototype for Michael Myers. He's also, he seems to be completely one of the prototypes for James Cameron's Terminator. It's just, it's such an iconic idea and I love the way that the film starts off with all these other characters we see little vignettes of other people in medieval world and Roman world but we're mainly focused on James Brolin and and Richard Benjamin uh, you know and and I never really felt those pieces of the film really kind of worked you know especially the whole thing in medieval world with that older guy who was you know uh, you know I, I really was was uh, so happy when the black Knight stabbed him in the in the in the gut I, I really was like I would have cheered if it was at a theater. I was like, my God, get rid of that guy. And uh, and we didn't really see a lot of Roman world, because there isn't really much. There's a, there's a garden. That's all Roman world is. You know, this film is a low, low, low-budget film. <laughs> um, so I love how it goes from, you know, these vignettes, all these other characters, this whole entire park, and then within the last 20 minutes, it just breaks down. It's just two people, and it's just a fight for survival. It's such a... It's such a di- it's such a direct cinematic dynamic with no dialogue. It's just it's just one guy wants to kill the other guy, you know. And this other and this one guy is an unstoppable robot, can't be stopped, can't be killed because it's not alive. And this other guy who is just completely fleeing for his life. And and even you know there are certain points where he tries to kill the robot. He, he throws hydrochloric acid in his face, and the robots face bubbles up and, and boils and, you know, really kind of vis-a-vis maybe a little bit of what was going on in, in Terminator there. Could, well, I, I guess it's it's what are you going to do with a robot? You've got to find some way to, to burn it or kill it or, or do something. And uh, and eventually, you know, uh, he does get burnt burnt up. Very fascinating how they did that, that melting flesh uh, uh, trick in this film, where they basically just, uh, you know, put, uh, you know, use ground-up Alka-Seltzer in his uh, pancake makeup that they put on his face, and then they had this just these tubes that were pumping out uh, smoke, and so that's really it, it's just um, tubes with smoke and Alka-Seltzer, and you hit him with water, and he's, his face starts to bubble, uh, so it's, that's some very kind of neat, neat stuff there. And then the, the ending with Richard Benjamin, where he tr- he finds the uh, the young woman who's locked up in the cell, and he takes her out, and he's like tries to give her a drink of water, and she turns out she's a robot, and he short circuits her. And I always felt that was kind of leaning up to you know doing something with with water with Yul Brenner, you know. And I think there probably I think there maybe was a bit of the scene which was. Which was cut. There were a number of minutes of, of Westworld which were edited out. I think there actually was a, a bank robbery in the film, which is now you just hear in the background, just alluded to. I think that ending was originally extended. I think there was another 
I think the Westworld robot, actually, the, the gunslinger robot, uh, actually, there was one more battle. There was one more fight. But uh, I think the film as it stands now is just um, a great, wonderful film. You know, one thing I always notice, a little, a little detail that, that I, I always uh, thought about was, okay, the, the, the park is supposed to be so super safe, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's supposed to be so super safe, but they give the guests, you know, guns which have live ammunition in them. Uh, the guns have a sensor which is supposed to... Um, uh, not fire at anything that's warm. So they can't kill anything that's living, apparently. But, I, again, the idea of, of giving guests live ammunition and, uh, and uh, you know, ha- letting them have at it, it just seems... And then a bar fight where you could hit... Somebody could be hit over the head with a, uh, with a, with a chair and, and completely mess themselves up for life. Seems like you still... When you went to Westworld, you probably would have to sign a, a hell of a, a legal agreement to to get in the doors. You know, <laughs> it seems like a hell of a still a hell of a dangerous place, even without uh, even without live ammunition. You know, all the fighting and stuff that's going on there. But uh, anyway, I guess it's me thinking too much. And and then I mean, how do you? And then okay, the live ammunition is safe, but how do you keep the uh, the weaponry safe in the medieval world and Roman world? You know. He's still got uh, sharp daggers and that stuff. And then, and then, why is the black knife? If you were going to have sword fights and stuff, why would you have a, a sword which was sharp enough that it could puncture, puncture human skin? I mean, just obviously, like the the guns in in Westworld, the the knives in 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 uh, in Roman world and medieval world should be so dull that you couldn't even slice bread with them. You know, you, it should be so dull that you know you couldn't hurt anybody with them it just should be slabs of metal but anyway i guess for realism's sake you know they wanted to keep that uh they wanted to keep the the sharpness of the blades there right i guess so <laughs> now westworld was a big success the brass at mgm didn't have a lot of confidence in the film because you know michael crichton was you know pretty much he shot the film you know and, and cut it in camera which is to say that he didn't have a lot of extra footage and he came up with a cut which he hated. He came up with a second cut which is a little bit better, and they showed it to MGM and they authorized some additional shooting. And at that also at that time the the imagery, the digital imagery from John Whitney was coming back, and the score was also being reworked. I get, another really super super effective part of this film, and probably one of the one of the things which really keeps it together, the glue which kind of, you know, puts it all together, is this excellent score by Fred Carlin, which is, he alternately plays off the the Western and medieval and and Roman uh, themes. At the same time, there is this kind of pulsing electronic background, which is so... I I, I can't help but think the, the end of this film, which is just total no dialogue just total music and and chase if you if you listen to the theme and then this kind of harried kind of insistent type theme it sounds you know very similar to the kind of thing that john carpenter was doing at the end of halloween in fact in some ways it it sounds identical it's different notes different music it's 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 that's you know john carlin's is a big theme with just electronic music and you know 
John Carpenter scores a much, much smaller theme, much smaller music, but uh, it still works in that kind of same way. And and also, Fred Carlin does stuff throughout the score of these little music hits, which kind of underline the idea that that we are looking at as a robot. You'll see the glint of this of this eye of these me- mechanical silver eyes, and you'll have and you have a little stinger there, which I you know was very very effective and and put you within the context of this being a science fiction film, you know, but not overtly so. So really excellent soundtrack that really kind of bounds it all together along with the kind of excellent performance wonderful performance by Yul Brenner as a gunslinger probably the, the the iconic element which you take away from this film is the gunslinger and the the moments where his his face comes off and you see the the circuitry beneath his face you know again that's that's the big image from the poster as well so Westworld came out it did very well and I don't think Michael Crichton was very crazy about doing a sequel, but the producers bought the sequel rights from Crichton, and they took it to AIP, and they made a film called Future World. And Future World is, in the sense that Westworld is a really A movie, in the, in the sense that it has interesting themes, it has interesting ideas, it's conceptually something that's very new and fun, and unique. Future Worlds is is a pure B movie. It's it's out on DVD, made on demand through MGM here in the United States. It's been released in Europe on Blu-ray. And rewatching that film, I, I take away with how much you know, like Westworld's like a Turner Classic Movies film, and Future Worlds like a TBS Netflix type film. I don't know if people will kind of get those the ideas but i mean it's like a late night cable type of junk food type film really it has some interesting effects it has some interesting actors i think it gets off the film succeeds on the good graces of peter fonda and blythe danner as these two reporters who are trying to uncover the mystery of uh, delos this film takes place two years after westworld Delos has been totally renovated, that every circuit, every part of the old Delos has been replaced. The guardrails are now firmly intact. And it's kind of like a a political thriller where they're going to use these robots to replace political figures and take over the world, that type of thing. You know, in some ways, I mean, Westworld was so low budget that I mean they were reusing corridors. They had to at the end of the film they redressed the corridors like four or five times. They're always running down the same corridors. They only were able to build half of the of the hovercraft, and then they couldn't even show the exterior of the hovercraft really because the the model just failed on so many so many so many levels. You just really see the inside of the hovercraft and like part of its wing as it's as it's. Uh, as it's moving over the land in in this video footage. So, I mean, Future World, I can't say it really opened up the film because it was just shot on on location in these kind of futuristic-looking areas. And and there's some good effects in Future World in keeping with um, the technical innovation with the digital imagery in in Westworld. Future World had some of the first uh, 3D modeling uh, in in a film ever there, so that was really a productive thing. But 
overall, it, it strikes me as as not a memorable film. You know, the only thing I I take away from it is the they keep having these iconic images of the the androids with no face on them. To me, it, it just never really comes together in the way that the iconic manner in which the original Westworld kind of came together. And then there's this ridiculous little cameo by Yul Brenner as the gunslinger from the first film. He doesn't even show up in the film proper. He just shows up in, in this dream sequence, like Blythe Danner. We see her, see her in an early scene, like slobbering over the gunslinger. And then she has this dream where she like meets the gunslinger, and then they're in bed. It's just, it's the most ridiculous way to to wedge in Yul Brenner for some marquee value in this film. And that really is probably a, a reason to hate the film for just, you know, you know, shoving Yul Brenner into this into this garbage. So, then there was a Westworld television series which I think only went 5 episodes. I only think they broadcast 3 episodes. I'd actually never heard of that, but then with doing some research I mean, a Westworld television series, you could you could think that they could work, you know. Uh, but, again, I don't really have any big interest in watching it when the original Westworld is just so iconic. So, there it is, Westworld, a, a fun, iconic, important piece of 70s sci-fi, you know, right next to Mega Man and Soylent Green and and all of those great films of the 70s, it deserves its rightful place in the throne, so watch out for it. 